Hi everyone, welcome back to the Mind Boggler. I'm so happy because we bought a new mic. It's so cool. Like, okay, let me do a little SMR ASMR test. Okay, like, okay, listen, listen. that is what coffee sounds like you know now i can be like an asmr youtube channel or like a food reviewer you know like oh my god you guys this cheeseburger is so amazing the meat is so juicy and flavorful and the cheese just melts into my mouth like literally this is the best cheeseburger i've ever had in my life do I like sound good? I feel like I sound good. I feel like that could be my new kind of career path moment. You know what I'm saying? Okay, so I just have to break it out to you. My co-host couldn't make it today because he's feeling unwell right now. And these days, every time I talk to him, all he could talk about is his phlegm he got stuck inside his throat, which is a little disgusting. Sometimes he even proceeds to like, let me hear him coughing it out, like the disrespect, am I right? And so I will be doing this podcast alone today. And when I'm alone, there will not be anyone stopping me from saying anything stupid. But you know what? Talking to myself is kind of a hobby for me. I sound like a loser, but I guess that's the truth, huh? And so for today's story, I'm covering this pretty recent Indonesian case. It happened late of last year, which is September of 2020. It consists of mutilation, a couple, and Tinder. I bet you guys have already heard about this case, and it's the Tinder Kalibata City mutilation case. But before we jump into the story, let's talk a little bit about dating apps. As you guys may know, this isn't the first murder or like crime-related thing regarding to dating apps. One of the reasons why dating apps have these negative stigmas is because sometimes people do be doing something evil. I've heard a lot about robbery or sexual assaults or even murder happens because the perpetrators would look for their victims through dating apps. But you know what? I feel like it's not always bad because there are actually a lot of people who met through dating apps and ended up getting married. So not a lot of people are evil in the dating apps, but still we gotta be really precautious because you know what? I feel like through the internet era, perpetrators find it very easy for them to find victims, especially nowadays when it's like a culture for us to like share everything we do on a daily basis on like social media. I feel like that would really benefit the perpetrators finding their victim. And so let's talk a little bit about how this kind of all started you know the online dating culture and so the idea of dating has changed quite a bit dating used to like consist of first dates that ended up with marriage proposals or family making marriage deals between their children in the past three decades dating has become more of a process that can last for years before marriage is even considered and so as the generation change so does the idea of dating and how one finds a companion you know when the first modern newspaper was invented people bought the personal ads to discreetly connect and communicate with one another in hopes of finding love. You know what I'm saying? But when the internet was conceived, it connected all of us. Thus, personal ads went digital and the internet dating service was born. And I feel like these days, everyone have had their own fair share of like dating apps. So it just becomes more and more normal these days, right? Especially when it comes to our generation, like Gen Z, where we grow up getting used to things coming easy for us. This instantness in today's generation is starting to become a culture. You literally can get anything in an instant, including a new girl 
girlfriend or a new boyfriend, right? Like these days, it's just so easy to replace and be replaced. It's just turning into this vicious cycle in a sense. The better person is only a tap or a like or a swipe away. Better as in someone who's prettier or cuter or hotter, etc. And it's like when you know you can get with anyone you want, why would you want to stop there, right? But the thing is, I feel like people in our generation are starting to forget that there's no better feeling than finding someone who actually wants to stay. And I feel like that's really the real flex, you know, when you do find that everyone who used to be better than just becomes another unimportant person. And so let's stop with the lovey-doveyness and jump right into today's story. So on 16th September of 2020, the word Tinder was viral and even became a trend on Indonesian Twitter. But okay, listen, every time I read about Indonesian cases, it's always so silly. Like the motives are silly and at the end of it, the cases are more stupid and enraging than it is interesting. That's why it's kind of hard for me to like pick really interesting Indonesian cases or maybe I just haven't dig deep enough, I don't know. But for today's case, this is one of the most silliest cases I've ever heard. And so this story begins with a man by the name of Rinaldi. Rinaldi was this bright man who graduated his master's and got his PhD from Tokyo University of Foreign Studies. He has a lot of videos regarding to his life in Japan on his YouTube channel, right? And you can see from the videos, he was just this really bubbly and exciting person. He also had a lot of love for anime and Japanese like culture in general. Like he's a really big weeb of a man. Like he's just so in love with like the Japanese cultures, the cultures of Japan. A lot of people actually know that about him. That's what he's famous for. And there are actually a lot of like pictures of him just posing in like a kimono because he was in Japan and he loves anime which is really cute for me like I don't see anything bad about it like it's just really cute that he is just very comfortable in like showing everybody his interest <laughs> and so when he was working as an HR in one of Japan's company he married this flight attendant whose name was not published by the news when he came back to Indonesia he was at the age of 32 years old and he decided to go to tinder right this is not a surprise and a lot of people who knew him were asked how is his relationship with his wife because clearly why would a married man go to tinder and like you know swipe on like single ladies or etc right but the thing is not a lot of people actually knows the inside of what was going on in his marriage so Rinaldi was in Tinder for quite a bit until he matched with this particular woman by the name of Laylee. And so Rinaldi and Laylee was hitting off pretty well to the point that they got to exchange numbers and continue to have conversations back and forth in some messaging apps, right? Until one day they decided to meet up in a hotel called Red Doors. And that day was the 9th September of 2020. So let's talk a little bit about who this Laylee is and why someone as like, well, I would say he's pretty well off. Someone as well off as Rinaldi would like swipe right on her her and was willing to meet up with her because this is one of the things that I had questions about when I first heard about this case. So it turns out Laylee is an alumni of the most prestigious university in Indonesia, which is University of Indonesia. She took mathematics and science and at one point she even got to be the head of the student executive board in 2014, right? Especially in Indonesia, if you get into like University of Indonesia, you're considered as super smart, like you're really, really smart to be getting in there, right? She also went viral on Twitter in 2019 because of a certain Twitter threads shared by Bunga, which is Laylee's boyfriend's ex-wife. Yes, Laylee was actually in a relationship when she was going to meet up with Rinaldi and a person she was in a relationship with was a man by the name of Padre. So allegedly from the Twitter threads that got Laylee viral a couple years ago, it was stated that Laylee kind of stole Bunga's husband away. In Indonesian terms, people would call her Palakor, which 
is a slur given to women who likes to seduce married men and making them leave their wives for them, right? But here's my thoughts on that. See, I feel like it's kind of unfair that that kind of degrading slur is only given to the women when it comes to affairs. Like you can't really steal someone's husband or boyfriend away unless they want to be stolen. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, I mean, your man is not an object. They have control over their actions. A million girls can hit them up, can come up to them, and they can choose to be like, no, I have a girlfriend, leave me alone. Or they could just bang each and every girl in the world. So yeah, that particular slur doesn't make sense to me. It just, it's really misogynistic in my opinion. Now let's get back to this story. So now you know that Laylee actually has a boyfriend when she was going to meet up with Rinaldi, right? And so what was the plan for this? What were they trying to do? Well, they both actually planned to rob him to steal his money right because they also think that he's a well-off dude and so Laylee ended up making Rinaldi book a room for five days right and on the day the two of them were to meet Fadri which is Laylee's boyfriend came earlier to the hotel and waited inside of the bathroom a few moments later Rinaldi came to the hotel and he met Laylee for the first time and they started talking and talking and then they started that they were going to have sexual intercourse and so they were doing it right and in the middle of them doing it, Laylee took a brick, a brick, and beat him up until he was literally unconscious. And soon after, Fadri went out of the bathroom and continued to stab him for seven times that actually led him to his death. And so this is when things starts to get a little bit silly because after they killed him, they didn't have any idea on what to do with his body. So they ended up, you know what? Maybe we should just like mutilate him, right? mutilate his body because we don't know what to do and so after that they decided to buy some tools from the material shop right to continue to mutilate his body they ended up mutilating his body into 11 pieces and those 11 parts of the body were put into like suitcases and a couple of plastic bags and so what happens next what was their plan after murdering him and mutilating his body well they found out that he has about 97 million rupees in his bank account that's actually equivalent to six thousand dollars so they murdered a person and mutilated his body for only six thousand dollars and so they started splurging on things that i don't i don't even know why they would do this like it doesn't make sense to me because they started buying 11 gold bars they bought 11 gold bars and they also bought a motorcycle an iphone x and a couple of other phones i believe and it's just so silly to me like why would you even commit first degree murder like you commit first degree murder for six thousand dollars and you end up splurging on things that's not even important and see these are one of the things that makes my heart broken every time i get to read or listen to a case that consists of murdering people when you murder someone you stop them not only from living their life but you stop them from being a brother a parent a husband a son to a mother and a father you know what i'm saying do you get what i'm saying because it's too much it's deeper than that and i can't believe these people literally killed him for six thousand dollars and they end up splurging it on things that's not important like what the hell you know what i'm saying so moving on to the story on 9th september of 2020 there was a missing persons report and that missing person is rinaldi a lot of his friends even his family were trying to reach out to him but they got no notifications back so he was unable to be reached out he was unable to be called or texted and so a lot of his friends and relatives were really scared for him like they were really worried and so they decided to just report him as missing and so after that the police started investigating this case right and they ended up finding a body in an apartment called 
Kalibata city in the 16th floor where they found a suitcase and inside of that suitcase was Rinaldi's body. And so soon after, they found the perpetrators the same day they found the body, which were Laylee and her boyfriend, Fadri. And they were both ended up sentenced to a lifetime in jail. And so that is the end of that silly, silly case. And so earlier in the podcast, we were talking about dating and how the dating culture works, especially in this time and age, right? And the next case that I will be talking about has a lot to do with that, has a lot to do with the dating culture and dating in general, but mostly it has something to do with toxic relationships. What we're going to be talking about today is how a toxic relationship of these two high school sweethearts that ends in murder. And so let's talk a little bit about relationships, but specifically toxic relationships. Okay, I feel like even from a young age, we were already introduced to the idea of dating, not fully knowing what it's really about. But here's the thing, whether we realize it or not, being in relationships actually affect a big part of our growth. In a sense that who you surround yourself with, who you spend the most time with matters for your growth. Now, toxic relationships are very common, especially in the younger days when we first started to jump into the dating life. But sometimes it takes a massive toll in our life that we don't even realize it. So what are the things that are considered toxic in a relationship? How do you define a toxic relationship? Well, I will be talking about the things that Mark Manson wrote on his blog about science if you are in a toxic relationship. So the thing is, many of us enter the dating world not even knowing that a lot of our beliefs about relationships are actually toxic to begin with. Let's first get clear about what a toxic relationship is. So according to Mark Manson's blog, a toxic relationship occurs when one or both people are prioritizing love over the three core things of a healthy relationship, which are respect, trust, and affection. But here are my thoughts on what he said by prioritizing love. I think sometimes a lot of things that are not love can feel like love because then he continued by saying, if you prioritize love over the respect you're given, you'll tolerate being treated like a doormat. If you prioritize love over the trust in the relationship, you'll tolerate lying and cheating. If you prioritize love over the affection in the relationship, you'll tolerate a cold and distant existence in the relationship. But here's what I think. What he mentioned earlier is the opposite of love, right? You don't treat someone you love like a doormat. You don't cheat on someone you love. You don't be distant to someone you love. That's not love at all. I feel like what he's saying is if you let yourself be manipulated in the name of love. There is a huge, huge difference between someone actually loving you or someone manipulating you into thinking that they love you. And to spot the difference between someone actually loving you and someone manipulating you is that manipulators would use their quote-unquote love against you. And so how do they use it against you? Well, here are the things emotional manipulators would say to you. And if you feel like you're familiar with this, then congratulations, you're in a toxic relationship. So manipulators would say something in the lines of, oh, after all the things I did for you because I love you, or I'm only doing this because I love you. Or like, if you really loved me, then you would do that for me. If you really love me, then you would never question me. If you really love me, then you would trust me. Trust what I say to you. Did any of that sound familiar to you? So there are many ways for a relationship to be toxic, but I want to highlight this one very common thing in toxic relationships, which is emotional manipulation. Emotional manipulation is actually very, very common in toxic relationships to the point that people normalize it and think that that's a normal behavior. Let me tell you something. Emotional manipulators often use mind games to seize power in a relationship. That's what they're looking for, power. And the whole purpose of that, the ultimate goal is to use that power to control the other person. In other words, their ultimate goal is to have power to control you. 
So I'm just going to talk about what my experience was being in a toxic relationship so you guys can recognize the manipulation and stop it. You know what I'm saying? Stop the abuse. And so there are actually a lot of emotional manipulation tactics that I'll be talking about right now. So let's start from the beginning, the beginning of a relationship where you guys are close together, where you guys are starting to talk, starting to connect. And this might seem normal to a lot of people, but this is actually what emotional manipulators do in order for them to manipulate their victims. They would do a tactic that is called love bombing or they get too close too quickly. And they would say something along the lines of, oh, I feel like we're just connecting on a really deep level right now. I've never felt this before with anyone. But what they're really doing is that they would make you feel special now so that later they would use your vulnerability against you. Another thing that manipulators often do is they would make you feel sorry for voicing your concerns. If you ask them a question or make a suggestion or like telling them that something is bugging you or making you uncomfortable, an emotional manipulator will likely respond in an aggressive manner or try to draw you into an argument. This tactic actually allows them to control your choices and influence your decisions. They also use this to make you feel guilty for expressing yourself, for expressing your emotions and feelings in the first place. And they would say something in the lines of, hey, this is who I am, okay? Like, you can't change me. It's who I am. You know that I'm like this, etc., right? And you can do your own research on the rest of the emotional manipulator's tactics, but I want to talk about specifically, and this is the ultimate, the ultimate emotional abuse for me, and that is the suicide threat. Or you guys may be more familiar with, if you leave me, I'll kill myself. If you're in a relationship with someone that threatens to kill themselves if you leave them, you are a victim of the biggest emotional abuse. There are actually other threats that are similar in this nature. Like when someone you're in a relationship with says something like, if you leave me, then I'll do this. Or like, if you leave me, then I'm gonna sue you because you broke me. Yeah, this broken version of me is your doing and I'm gonna sue you. But okay, I'm just gonna talk specifically about when someone says, I love you so much that if you ever leave me, I'm gonna kill myself. This is a form of abuse. It's abusing your compassion and empathy and making you feel so guilty that you have to stay with them. Their whole purpose is to guilting you into staying in what I would call a very, very unhealthy relationship. Now, this kind of behavior can come from a lot of things, but when someone does this, they do it out of fear. They're afraid, they're scared. That is something a person would say out of insecurity. And most of the times it's an empty threat. And I know some of you guys are probably thinking, oh, what if they do have some kind of issue with their mental health? What if they have anxiety disorder and depression that makes them have these suicide thoughts, etc., right? Well, the difference between manipulators and people who actually have mental health issues is that manipulators goals is not to die. The manipulators goals is to make you feel guilty enough for you to stay. When manipulators threaten you with this, their goal is not about dying. Their goal is not to die. Their goal is to have power to control you. So what do you do if you're in a relationship that abuses you to the extent like that? Well, you have to first of all know that you are not stuck in that relationship forever. Okay, you have a choice to leave. Second of all, you have to understand that what they're doing to you is not out of love. That is not love. That is abuse. That is fear. And always remember that no matter what your partner says, you don't have to prove anything. Even though they might say something like, 
if you really love me, you would stop me from killing myself. The thing about being in a relationship with a toxic person is they will most likely to continue no matter how many times you give in to your partner's demands. But here's the thing, sometimes we are a part of it. We are a part of the toxic environment we put ourselves into, like a toxic relationship, for example. Because the truth is we attract what we are. And if you end up with someone who is toxic in a way, you probably have some kind of issue inside of yourself that you haven't figured out yet, whether you realize it or not. And those issues that I'm talking about could be inner child or like insecurities, any kind that makes you feel like you are lacking of something. See, we often do this in our relationships. We often want to get what we don't have in ourselves from our partners. And that is actually the biggest sign that you are not ready to be in a committed and serious relationship because then you just jump into a relationship with this unrealistic expectations that your partner could and must fulfill everything that you need, whether it's validation or to make you feel important and worthy or the worst to make you feel like you're not alone. I don't know who needs to hear this, but in order for you to find abundance in your relationship, you shouldn't be coming from a place of lack. Okay, so let's jump into the next case that we're going to be talking about. Today, we're going to be talking about the case of Conrad Roy. So this case happened in 2014 and is commonly known as the texting suicide case. And so this story begins with a man by the name of Conrad Henry III. And he was an 18 year old boy at that time who was born on September 12th in 1995 in Massachusetts, USA. His family recalled him as a bit of a troublemaker, but his sister remembered that he always seemed to get away with all the trouble that he caused. He was also very athletic and he loved baseball and he ran tracks and he was very, very academically gifted too because he graduated top of his class. He got about 3.88 GPA, I believe. So everybody knew him as this very diligent, very perfect boy, right? But little do everybody know, underneath all of that, he was actually struggling with a lot of mental illnesses. And so from a very young age, he was already experiencing social anxiety, like at school and in classes, and things starts to get worse and worse as he gets older. His social anxiety eventually turns into anxiety disorder and depression. And even though he saw several counselors and therapists throughout his teenage years, nothing really seemed to be working for Conrad. And so to the point that when he was at 17 years old, he attempted suicide for the first time. So Conrad overdosed on paracetamol and he was speaking to this girl online at that time and he told her what was going on and she panicked and she then called the police who then got Conrad to the hospital where he was saved. And so after his suicide attempt, he started to make videos about his social anxiety. And at one video, he was talking about how social anxiety is for him. And he kept saying that he knows everybody just kept telling him that he needs to be happy. He needs to be comfortable in his own skin. But the thing is, it's not that he doesn't want to be happy. It's just that this anxiety disorder keeps you from functioning like a normal person, especially in social settings. And so on 2012, when he was visiting his relative in Florida, he met a girl by the name of Michelle, Michelle Carter. So Michelle was a year younger than him. She was about 15 years old when they met and he was 16. And so after talking for a while, they found out that they both lived in Massachusetts and Michelle was only living an hour north of Conrad. So let's talk a little bit about Michelle. So Michelle was equally as troubled as Conrad. She was suffering with eating disorder and self harm and a lot of other mental illnesses. She had counseling and she was on medication since the age of 14 years old. 
And so they started to form this online relationship. They would text every day, they would talk to each other in all sorts of social media platforms. They would call each other their boyfriends and their girlfriends, you know what I'm saying? And even though they have this very intense online relationship, they only met in person for about two or three times, I believe. But other than that, they would just talk with each other on the phone for 24 seven, right? And Michelle would help Conrad through a lot of his mental illnesses and she'd talk him down from committing suicide several times over the two years of them knowing each other, right? So every time Conrad is like, okay, you know what? I'm just gonna do it this time. I'm gonna push through. I'm gonna literally kill myself this time. Michelle is always like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. You have to seek for professional help. If you don't go and seek professional help, I will do it for you. I will get someone to come and help you, okay? And a lot of the times their online chats were very, very, intense and dark because they have one thing in common and that one thing in common is they both suffer from mental illnesses. They would literally talk about their own personal experiences with depressions and what they were going to do, what they're going through at that time, you know what I'm saying? And so Conrad told Michelle a lot of the times that he was going to commit suicide one day and that was just a very common conversation between both of them, right? And it's super sad because he would just research in his computer like how to get poison and death by cop. He also sent a lot of pictures to Michelle of guns, you know, and he would send pictures of nooses hanging from a tree and even said to her on one occasion, he was like, hey, maybe we should do it together. You know, maybe we should kill ourselves together or like Romeo and Juliet, you know, like a fairy tale, romantic, depressing fairy tale. And like I said, Michelle would always talk him out of it. She would say things like, I don't want you to die. I will miss you, etc. Right. And so fast forward to 2014, Conrad was just graduated from college and he has a lot of scholarships from business school. So he was going to go into a business school. Right. And everyone who knew Conrad and his family were just like, wow, such a perfect boy. He really be out here living the American dream. Am I right? But little do everybody know he was struggling more than ever at that point. However, he got used to kind of of internalizing it so that everybody would know what he was kind of feeling at that time, right? So he was just hiding it very well. And so on July 12th of 2014, Conrad and his mother and his sisters all went for a walk at the beach and they got ice cream and his family remember him being very just positive at that day, right? He was just bubblier than ever. It's just kind of weird for them to see, but happy at the same time because it's just so good to see him finally being happy. Although he was kind of like being an antisocial because he was on his phone a lot but you know what this mom was like maybe that's just what teenagers do they just they're just on their phone a lot right it's just normal but later that evening conrad told his mom that he was going to see a friend and that he wouldn't be home for dinner and he went and got into his truck and drove away so the following morning conrad's family woke up and he was still not home and this was completely out of character for him right he never done this before so his parents then immediately called the police to file a missing persons report right and hours after the police found his car in front of a kmart and next to the car was this generator so essentially what the generator does is that it provides more carbon monoxide into the car and so the police seeing this they already had an idea on what was going on right and as they walked to the car and opened the door they found conrad completely lifeless so he killed himself with carbon monoxide poisoning. So carbon monoxide poisoning occurs when carbon monoxide builds up in your bloodstreams. When too much of that is in the air, your body replaces the oxygen in your red blood cells with carbon monoxide. And this can lead to serious tissue damage or even death. And because of the generator pumping in the carbon monoxide more and more each second, it only took 20 minutes for carbon monoxide to kill him. 
And so hearing this news, hearing that Conrad took his own life in front of a K-Market, inside of his car, his family and friends were just devastated of his passing. And so they decided to go to his bedroom and kind of reminisce who he is as a person, right? And when they went through his things, they noticed that he left several suicide notes. And all of them were addressed to different people, mainly people in his life, right? Family and close friends. And there was this one letter addressed to someone that the family didn't know. And that person is by the name of Michelle. And so after a while, Michelle actually reached out to Conrad's family being devastated because she just lost the love of her life, right? So like I mentioned, she lived about 30 miles away from Conrad's home and she went there and went to his funeral and everything. And the family were just so grateful to have her there because she's just known as this person who has been there for Conrad even in his darkest times, right? They were just grateful because she was there to help him. She was there to like stop him from all the suicide attempts. And she even talked to his grandmother saying, I'm so sorry I couldn't help him. You know, like I tried my best. I'm so sorry that I couldn't save him. And I'm just really devastated, etc. And in that time, she started posting about how she lost her boyfriend to suicide. And people just gave her all the attention in the world. They were like, oh my God, are you okay? Do you need help? My condolences, etc. And she just became this activist to anti-suicide. Do you know what I'm saying? Like suicide prevention. She started posting a lot of stuff like, I may not be able to save my boyfriend from his suicide, but I am here to tell you guys that you need to be there for your loved ones because they can be dealing with something so big right now. Reach out to your beloved. Do you know what I'm saying? Like those type of activists. And so this is when things started to get a little weird. As I said before, she lived about 30 miles away from Conrad, right? And one day she decided to have a charity on his name. So she wanted to make a charity event, right? On his name. And the thing is, instead of making the event located near Conrad's house, where Conrad's friends and families are located, she decided to make the event literally 30 miles away, which is where she lives. And it's so silly because like nobody knows who Conrad is. Like she's just making this charity event for nobody. But the thing is, I guess she just loved the attention. And so she went back to being this activist of like anti-suicide and like suicide prevention, having charity events here and there. But little did she know, the police actually were investigating her at this time. And so what are they investigating, right? Because it's clear that the cause of death is suicide. There was no bullets, no stabs, no nothing, right? It was suicide. So why were the police suspicious of Michelle? Well, one of the detectives that was investigating on this case actually went back to check on Conrad's phone and they were reading Michelle's text to him, right? And at first it was just like, wow, this Michelle girl is just really this caring person and she really loved him. She would do anything for him to be better again, right? But then they recovered thousands and I say, thousands of text messages that were deleted by Conrad and from those texts it's just the opposite of what Michelle led everyone to believe. Those text messages were completely dark and Michelle being from no don't do it don't kill yourself to okay then do it why aren't you doing it then you always say you're going to push through and actually do it this time but you never do so that was what she said. In those texts, Michelle just encouraged him to end his life. Like he would send her his researches about how he could kill himself, right? He would ask her, should I do this? Or should I like hang myself or should I buy poison, you know? And she would just casually answer it like, no, you should just hang yourself because you know that you wouldn't fail doing it, which is just super insane to me. 
and things get worse and worse each day. She just kept encouraging him to kill himself, right? It's just super crazy. And it intensifies nine days before he actually committed suicide. And when you read her messages, it was like this crazy, angry wife talking to her husband to like wash the dishes or something. She was like, you say you're gonna do it, but you never push through. You just, you just don't do it. You're just weak, you know? Keeping in mind that she's talking about her boyfriend killing himself, right? And it's to the point where she would just send these text messages in all caps saying things like, okay, then prove me wrong then, right? Like prove me that you're going to do it this time. Prove that you are going to kill yourself this time. You keep saying that you want to end your life. You want to end your life, but you never do. And it's just proves to me how weak you are. And so that was what she said to him, right? Which is super crazy. And so a couple of nights before he committed his suicide, she made him promise to her that he was going to do it for real this time. He was going to kill himself for real. And the worst part of it is that he kept saying stuff about his family. Like he was saying things like, I don't want my family to be sad. You know, I don't want to do it. I just don't want them to feel guilty. I don't want my mom to feel like this is her fault. And Michelle, the devil of a girl she is, has the audacity to say, "Ugh, you know what? Sure, they get sad, but they'll get over it, okay? Just do it. Like, just do it. You know what I'm saying? And it's just super crazy. And so let's get back to what happened inside of that car when Conrad was about to commit suicide. So he kept saying to Michelle, I don't think I'm going to do it. I'm scared, right? He was like, I don't think I'm going to do it. I'm just scared. Like, I don't even know where I should do it and how I should do it. Maybe I'll just do it tomorrow. I mean, another day won't hurt. But Michelle was like, no, you promised me you're going to do it. You promised me you have to do it. Just do it. Do it in an empty parking lot. And the thing is, he didn't do it until after the sun rises. So all that time, he was just in that car deciding whether or not he was going to commit suicide. And when the sun started to rise, he texted Michelle again saying, oh, the sun is already rising. I think I'll just do it tomorrow. But Michelle, she kept pushing him to do it. And so he then starts up the generator and in the middle of it, he leaves the car because he was scared. And this was when he was still alive. He leaves the car and he calls her immediately and he said that he didn't think he could do it, right? And Michelle, she was furious. She pretty much yelled at him for 30 minutes to get back in the car and told him that he wasn't allowed to end the phone call because she wanted to listen to him until it was done, until he was dead. So she was on the phone with him when he died, which is super crazy. And so the second he was dead, she hung up immediately, texted her friend by the name of Samantha. And she said in that text, oh, Conrad just called me and he was moaning on the phone. Like it was just crazy because he was like in pain and I don't know what to do, right? She was like, I don't know what to do, which is insane to me. And so why did she do all this? Why did she want Conrad to commit suicide so bad? What was the motive? So Michelle actually didn't have any friends growing up, right? And in her school, they have this group of popular girls and she was just dying to be friends with them. And the way she gained their attention is that she would lie about her boyfriend, Conrad. She would like say things like, oh, my boyfriend Conrad, he ran away and nobody could be in contact with him. I'm just super scared and devastated. But the thing is, Conrad didn't run away. So she was just lying for attention. And that group of girls, of course, they were just being good friends. And they were like, oh my God, Michelle, are you okay? It's gonna be okay, etc. right? And she loved this. She loves the attention, but she wanted something bigger. And Conrad's death could give her that. And so she was using Conrad for sympathy for her. Like, isn't that insane? You would let your so-called boyfriend end his life 
end his life so you'd get attention that's just super crazy and so the detective that found out about this was like okay this girl needs to be punished she needs to be punished good and the case was expected by some to set a legal precedent so in common law countries you kind of establish new law from previous cases with similar issues right because the thing is there was no law for someone encouraging another person to commit suicide and so they only charged her for manslaughter and she only ends up being sentenced to 15 months in jail and even so she was still trying to like appeal to overturn her conviction which is crazy and so they have multiple documentaries regarding this case and you can search it up if you're interested it's pretty sad that i don't have my co-host here to accompany me today although i'm kind of curious too on how william would react to this case but he's got phlegm all over his throat so what can i do about it right anyways that's it for today's episode you guys i hope you guys enjoy and i'll see you in the next one